Hello and welcome to the Third Age Babylon 5 podcast with a very special uh, proper meeting episode for once because we are celebrating the end of the first year of Babylon 5. Season 1 is at a close and we managed to put it just right that it's also the end of 2023 for us. So we are celebrating today and we brought some things to celebrate properly and uh, well discuss the end of this season and the finale. Yes. So uh, I uh, cooked this glühwein. Uh, What's the English word again? Mulled wine. I don't like that word. Let's call it glühwein. Um, and we are drinking it from these nice little tea glasses from my uh, grandmother, which are super cute and super old, I guess. Um, so uh, yes, this is an, a recipe I made up. So I hope it's good. Um, yes, we let, let Okay. <laughs> Cheers. 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 Oh, that was horrible. And it's a pretty good made-up recipe. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I like the, the orangey note in it. Yeah, well, it's of, of course, we just um, couldn't stop with, with drinks. We had to put something to eat on the table because, um, I mean, we always talk quite a long time and you can't do it without snacks. Um, these on the table here, I'll hold it up for those watching on YouTube. Uh, in German, they're called Eiserwaffel. Uh, which are, yeah, waffles that when they're hot are rolled and when they turn cold, they're sticking together. So you have this like, like a bit of a cone and then you put whipped cream uh, in it. Really hard to eat um, for those who ate uh, dinner or a kebab, know how it feels <laughs> to eat these things, but they are really delicious. Should we try one? We should toast these as well. And yeah, ruin our outfits. I'm sure we can uh, <laughs> take the one with the whipped cream already in it. <laughs> this is where everything goes horribly wrong. Yes. But I mean this. I see that I see a fault with our design. Shake it first. <laughs> Fill up so nicely. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. We put so much whipped cream in it, you roll home. Just like that. Yes. <laughs> so, cheers. Cheers. Cheers again. As a result, on my part, these two are the ones who will do the speaking. I will eat the whole time. So, um, yeah. Well, this is going to be a problem because then we are not going to get any first impressions on this episode. Too bad. To the ones only listening to us, this is very awkward, I guess. <laughs> no, this is the ASMR section of our, of our podcast. Now, so this is no problem at all. No, that we have to do a proper ASMR. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, we've served our traditions quite well, so I guess I have to do a little bit of a synopsis for this episode. This is terrible because I took a lot of notes, but... Um, it is kind of difficult to bring it into the right order. I noticed that while taking... There is so much happening on the station. Well, I guess we start with the most important first thing, as you lose your hat. Uh, yes, it's the end of the year. It's to December 31st. So uh, back on Earth, people are celebrating the coming of a new year, and they are celebrating on Babylon 5 as well. But as things wrap up for these big celebrations, a lot of untoward things are happening on the station. Um we have Delenn finishing up the little tower that she's been building over the past few episodes and preparing for the chrysalis, which is 
uh, giving us the name of the episode, but uh, this entire rest of the episode is about changes as well. Everything changes, as Sinclair says, because um, the president is assassinated in a plot that Garibaldi gets very close to actually uncovering, but right as they learn that uh, Earth Force 1 is going to get jammed, it's already too late and it blows up, so this entire plot plays out and ends up with Garibaldi taking a bullet for finding out as much as he did. And finally, we have Londo striking a deal with the devil. I think we're all in agreement that this is more or less what happened. And uh, basically foregoing any negotiation that he had with Jakar and instead just, well, overwhelming the Narn outpost that they are talking about with force. I think that was a pretty good summary. Yes. yes. Okay, so we have... Uh, three big chunks to talk about there and probably a lot of little details in between but uh, as always we take one step back and look at our first impressions and as always we start with our first time viewer yes um i'm afraid again but i have to say i was a bit negatively surprised in the way that um i imagined a more of a dramatic scenes there Mm -hmm. um, in Ivanova's words it's um, not the big boom I anticipated and yeah I, I feel like there's not much to talk about which usually results in that we're talking a lot about it that's how it goes usually yes um, yeah but it's overall it's not that much um, where I that that jumped out to me like like I I would take with me. That's interesting, but I think I I think I get where you're coming from. Where when Sinclair says at the end of the episode, nothing is as it was before. I I kind of agree with him. Yes, things have changed quite dramatically, but it still doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of momentum going on. It doesn't feel like oh we are now. Uh, going to jump right into the continuation of this because I don't really know what that continuation would look like because there's these things happening but they aren't uh, they, they, they still don't feel like they're very clearly building up towards something yeah it's a bit like um, like you you have some some from made of glass or something like that that you break in, in a closed package mm. You know that it's broken, but you don't know how horrible does it look. Yeah. And this this is like like the kind of feeling I have after this episode. Because I know there's a lot happened, a lot of drastical things happened, but it's not like in the consequence of this impact will result from it. So yeah, it's it's a bit like a bit bit unsatisfying. We have yet to see things unravel from this problem. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, and of course it's not the usual finale you have comparing to other series uh, as a yeah season ending mm. uh, where usually something really big happens and then you have you don't have this this cliffhanger it's more like um there are things that will be different after the things that happened but you already ha have a bit of a solution of the big thing that happened in this episode and that's missing we should talk about this. Maybe we can have even a little conversation about how this 
season one finale compares to some of the other ones that we know and maybe really like. Like we could talk about uh, the the finale of Saga Atlantis, for example, the first season, which is like pretty much exactly what you're describing here as, as kind of what you would expect. But uh, before we get to anything like that, uh, what are your first impressions, Layla? My first impressions were, yeah, um, I always remember a lot of first impressions with this episode because this is still the part I've watched a lot more than just twice. And um, I have to say that if we look at season one as an introduction, I feel like this is not really the, feel doesn't feel like the big showdown of a season because this is just how a, how an interesting interestingly written prologue would end, like something big happens, but you've you have this feeling of it's just a step one for something bigger to happen. So if I if I read a novel, there's a prologue that's like this short first chapter that's different that introduces me to the world. This is how that could end. And then the story starts. So that's my feeling in this episode. It's now the story can start, which is something I can only say now because now I know that the story is going to start. The first time, I guess I was, I was mildly mildly interested in what was going to happen next. But um, the episode where the show really got to me, where I really was like, now it's interesting, now I want to see more, now I'm totally invested into this universe, that is still to come. But we're getting closer, so I'm a bit curious and finally saying that, like, this was it, this is why I really like the show. We're not quite there yet. But yeah, for me, this is really an episode that I think it, it, it brings together a lot of a lot of plots that were introduced, like a lot of loose ends are very, very loosely tied together here, and now it can take off and do more. That's it for me, I guess. And I think I'm I'm kind of in the same boat as you here, where this is a, a nice ending to this introduction season of Babylon 5, where it feels like there was a status quo, and it's gone now, but I still completely agree with you, Mike, that as long as you don't know what this next phase looks like, this isn't it's it's it doesn't get satisfying even uh, even in hindsight but in hindsight you you can see it more as a big milestone um but even then it's um just looking back now at season one as as one thing that on its own i don't feel like um is topped off by this finale no it's what i had to think about were people that complained about the last june movie that said like it's an endless introduction and i fell asleep halfway through um, that to say, I love that movie. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I feel like this is really... Um, we had a very long introduction, and this is like a, a mild step to tell the next story. So that's really the feeling here. Which is... I mean, we can have a discussion about that later, but I think it's it's an interesting storytelling choice to have such a first season. It's definitely a bit weird, I would say. Well, I, I really like your... Um comparison with with the prologue part um well i i'm i'm still on this show because you keep telling me it's awesome it's getting better and better um though i feel it would be quite difficult for people that don't have this reassurance and especially when it started in the in the um 90s so um even more surprising that it survived at all i mean and yeah. One of the things that is very big in, in, in Babylon 5 and what people to this day talk about is that JMS, the creator, was always very prominent on the Usenets back in the day and was really engaging with the community and they were having like convention appearances and stuff like that. So I think 
this, what we are doing with you now, like telling people, hey, this is going to be really awesome and stuff. Obviously, we can do this from a very strong position of having seen the show and having that opinion. But even back then, it was kind of this thing that the creators of the show were going out there and telling people this this is something that we have high hopes for and like a great vision. And I think the show does rely on that a little bit, that uh, you have this like outside influence going along with it. And um, I think even back then, being in the 90s, why does the show survive? I think this is part of it, that people were really engaged with it in the Usenets and stuff and um, following through with this. All that being said, or do you want to? Yeah, I think nowadays this would be rather difficult. Uh, I have to think like um, of, of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it started off really, really good. And then uh, there's, there's this this meme with the, with the horse painting. Yes. Yeah, where where the horse drawing gets worse and worse with with every episode, uh, with with every season, um, and yeah, I think this is what what a lot of people might be be scared. And on the other hand, this this yeah, it will get better. Is it, it feels a bit cheap, or it would feel cheap to me nowadays if if there's like someone saying yeah, it's it's this is going to be this and this, uh, especially I mean if you have. If you start a series like this, I mean, this like with uh, How I Met Your Mother, where the ending was was always um, ready from the start. Um, I think it is easier to to draw a red line through all of this. Um, but yeah, just because you have an ending prepared from the from the start doesn't mean you have a good story and a good series you present. Therefore, I think this is, it's rather, rather brave from both sides, from the creators and from the fans um, to, to keep watching this and say, yeah, this is, this is going to be awesome when you have like episodes, we already had like, oh, this is so boring, <laughs> can't something interesting happen? Um, I, I think what's, what added a lot to this is that uh, the creator of the show is quite a character to this day so his way of interacting with people i would say even nowadays feels different than your general generic sort of corporate hey this is gonna be great hype man so i think it it has a lot of that uh to do with people buying into this but also maybe a lot that uh tv worked a bit differently in the 90s mm. like monster of the week episodes were a bit more common then nowadays we have a lot more of this narrative drive in TV shows and they are also kind of sold to us in a different format because, you know, you can watch whole seasons in one evening if you want to uh, th through streaming services. So I think also there, the way people perceive TV shows or series has, um, also changed a lot over the years. All that being said, it's also not the case that Babylon 5 came out and was a roaring success. Uh, <laughs> right out of the gate. So th this show has been struggling uh, right from the very beginning. For the most part, not because of a lack of viewership, mostly because it was uh, associated with networks and such that were struggling on their own. But uh, that is definitely also the case that uh, if we wonder today, like, oh, that seems pretty brave to do. Yeah, it was. And it was an extremely ballsy gamble that they went on and it at many, many turns, it almost didn't go through. So there's uh, 
a million other shows from the 90s that basically tried similar things and didn't succeed and not necessarily because they were bad or worse or anything like that but just because they didn't get as many lucky breaks uh, as, as Babylon 5 did at the end of the day. Though on the other hand I think or at least it feels like this to me of course this doesn't mean it have, has to be uh, correct but it feels like me that for me like there was in the, in the 90s and and that the people were braver in trying new things. I mean, if I'm looking what is in the in the movies and in the theaters and and stuff like that, it feels like there's a lot of of remakes of old stuff. Of course, there is a reason to a lot of of these remakes just because there are more opportunities to um, put these things out now. But on the other hand, it feels rather cheap like let's let's just sell a story where we know it worked once so it will work twice now we're opening up we're opening up a door here <laughs> that's a rather big issue i guess i mean but I, I i see the point and i guess there definitely is some truth to it uh, i mean we, we can also approach it from the different angle um, just now as we're recording this um well not just now but in the year that we are recording this, that we are clo uh, closing this out on, um, something I would venture to guess somewhat similar to Babylon 5 has happened, where you have this idea, um, we live in an era where there's a lot of big established sci-fi franchises like Star Wars, like Star Trek, uh, which were as big in the 90s, if not more so, and a very passionate creator came along and said, I'm going to pitch it completely original idea Babylon 5 in the 90s which was very brave to do and uh, this year uh, it's uh, Zack Snyder's Rebel Moon which uh, absolutely flopped and nobody even knows about it because it didn't try anything brave and uh, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial when I say that it was regarded by critics and audiences alike as a general disappointment um, and and I think this is definitely something that we see nowadays that he mm, Taking risks is difficult, and there's many examples of people not taking those risks, even when they try to do something wholly original and not doing a remake, because it then still is just kind of rehashing the same kind of tropes, the same kind of symbolism, the same kind of style that has been used for the past 10, 20 years. And maybe this is ultimately also what, what gives Babylon 5 uh, this right to existence. Like we are looking at it in, the, in discussing season one now, there were many turns where we said, well, this feels very different than Star Trek. This feels very different than Star Wars at the time. And that in and of itself is, is a massive boon for this show, just by virtue of being something fresh. Do you remember how tough it was or how hard you had to work to keep me watching it? No, you will. I was quite, yeah, because I guess, I guess, um, I mean, I had your words always that it became more interesting, of course, but also I was in a, in a, in a very hard sci-fi mood when we watched it, so I would have swallowed a lot of things, actually. <laughs> um, and, and um, yeah, um, I guess for me, it, 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 it always, it always had this, 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 these concepts in it that I wanted to know more about, and, um, Okay, maybe this belongs into another podcast discussion, but no, maybe, I think it also belongs into this episode because this tries to very loosely as a first step, as I said, try to tie up some loose ends. And it just touches so many issues that I feel like are so timeless and so close to us and also are 
narrated in images that we just culturally know so well that um yeah i think i think even with audio words it could have always triggered have triggered this curiosity of i want to know what the hell they make out of this I mean, and I think this is, Mikey, you mentioned at the very beginning, every time you say there's not so much to say about it, we end up having a long discussion on it. So there, there is definitely some potential here, and I think especially in this episode, this is the case, because uh, as we saw in this uh, synopsis, there are three big things happening in this episode. Each one is a conclusion to the big plots that have been happening in this show so far. We've talked about these plots a lot already, so we will probably be able to do so again. Um... But, of course, then there is the question, like, how much do we want to credit the show for that, right? Like, uh, uh, you can have a lot of fun uh, and make entire careers out of talking about very bad things at length and, and having your fun with that. So, um, yeah, that's, it stands to reason that on its own isn't necessarily a mark of quality, but it's definitely something that we want to try to do and uh, see if maybe this pushes you along just long enough that you also reach the same pivotal point as as Leila hit eventually where I I don't know it's either developing Stockholm syndrome or actually starting to like the show where it's just like yes now I'm actually excited for things happening can I can I say something to that without spoiling anything sure because there actually there there are two moments okay one I cannot say something to because that would be a spoiler but there's one big moment where once again things are tied up but it's not an end of a season and it's not a big a big final thing of whatever conflict. It's really just a moment where suddenly I feel like okay, there there's such a big game going on and I'm so into it and I just I just want to keep watching and I feel the music in me constantly. Mm. The the moment comes for me rather suddenly. I didn't expect it, but there it just was and then it was there. And I'm so curious of when I get there. <laughs> It's gonna be. You will have to give us these moments as you, as we kind of go through your first-hand experience, and then we see if they match up or that your preferences yeah. are so different. If you have that moment, and when you're going to have that moment, that will be interesting. Mm. Or that works differently because I think emotionally we work very differently for that buffer. Yes, this is one thing, and on the other hand, I think there are some things that you just realize afterwards like like if if you if there's a change in your life or if it's a character thing or anything it's usually that after it's developed you realize hey that's different mm. um and i could imagine that with before this is the same for me maybe it's gonna be like the next meeting together at the end of season two where you can then retroactively tell us by the way this was the yeah, moment where it started clicking even though i didn't realize it at the time yeah i mean because i mean at this point it's it's like i'm sitting there yeah okay okay mm -hmm. so what are you doing with all the stuff you put up what are you constructing so and um two things i would like to add to that actually because one thing is that I think we said when we watched the first regular episode, not the pilot, but the first regular mm -hmm. episode, um, that we were there like, okay, interesting, but why are we seeing this? And what I really loved was that, and maybe I said that when we discussed that episode, I don't know, but what I really loved was after I finally watched all of it, I came back to that episode and I was, I was like, I was like hanging on their lips because I enjoyed every word because it had so much more weight. And that is something that I really loved. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, there we are again by these big promises, but that that works out, that you can come back and you are glued to what they say once more. That is something that I really, really love. I mean, it's an accomplishment of itself to rewatch something and on the one hand to find every time something new, but on the uh, other hand still watching it and like, like yeah, feeling the, this, this positive vibe or maybe even feel more of it than the first time um it's it's the the worst comparison uh, i i have is with with the the avatar movie um i i, I watched it the first time and i was like oh my gosh this is amazing and then i watched this it a second time and it was like hey this is pocahontas in space <laughs> that yeah. also happened that with a lot so. of lot of CGI, and I was rather sad with that. And I d I stopped watching it midway because mm. I was no longer interested in it. Because it's not like it's yeah, there there are movies and series you watch again and again and again, and you always feel content to watching it. And yeah, then there's the other way. And this is going to be something that's very interesting, uh, also in your experience, because. Um, everything that we are doing right now is still somewhat experimental and there are people and a significant portion of people who are big fans of Babylon 5 and will say this is one of the greatest show as, shows ever but also consistently skip the entirety of season 1 and will say yes Let me that, thing. But no, no, okay, now I have to open up another big big thing for me in watching before you go on this I'm sorry but all who do this I, I don't I don't understand you. I'm sorry. That this this would trigger so hard my my inner monk. I yeah. and this 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 no that as well. <laughs> I have to say I kind of get it because you can still get a big portion of the story if you do that, honestly. Um, but I also I I watch TV shows and I read books. Um, I mean I'm interested in world buildings and in scenarios if it's historically or if it, if it's sci-fi. I. I, I need that, but I also need the characters. Mm. And um, looking at some changes that are at some point, of course, going to come, um, I could never switch the first season. And I could never be like this. these moments, these things someone said there who may not be there later or whatever, just skip through that is also something that I could not do to the story. I don't know. I mean, a bit of skipping if you already watched it. Yeah, I can understand. It's like, well, I have to admit that I do this quite or did this quite a lot when I rewatched Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> and when it came to part two and three, when uh, Frodo and Sam are on their way, I might have skipped this a few times. Yes. But completely skipping it. And even from from time to time, I I rewatched this, even though I knew this this is not really my, my up my alley. I just watched it to to refresh my memory and to have the the complete story in my head back again. Mm -hmm. So constantly skipping no, this just 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 I get no and I just I I just find it interesting because like obviously we have a very strong consensus here, <laughs> but at the same time I I just mean to say like this is uh, Babylon Five can work on very di different levels for different people and uh, this is perfectly fine. And what I will say in in terms of experience in the sh the story wholesale, um, 
Babylon 5 is a TV show and is written as a TV show. And yes, the creator has a plan from A to B in mind from the very beginning, but he's also very pragmatic when it comes to the realities. The original plan that he had is very different from the plan that he has at the end of season two, at the end of season one, at the end of season five. And so I think it can also just depend on what version of Babylon 5 you read that it is that really clicks with you. And season one isn't necessarily part of it. And I, I do think at certain points in development, there were versions of Babylon 5 that existed that didn't include anything that we've seen so far or include stuff that happens after. So um, I don't think it's necessarily so easy to say that you get an incomplete experience because of that, because there is a version of the story that is complete like that. Yes, that's what I said when you opened that up. Okay. Um. Like I said, I just I have an emotional bond to some characters and couldn't do it. Mm. Um, but that's also how I sometimes can stick to a show, even though um, when I miss things or when things are unsatisfying. When I just, I think at first when I watched Babylon 5, I was definitely interested in what happened, what would happen to Sinclair. Because um, I wanted to listen more to him talk in difficult situations. That was definitely a thing that interested me. Another thing was that I was really interested into telepath and was in the beginning, really invested in Talia's story, I think, or wanted to know what the hell are they going to do with her, um, as well as as well as 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 not so much Delenn actually than Lanier. Mm. And sometimes that I have that, but I just have this idea of I want to know what they do with this person. Um, I can also watch through a lot of stuff. So yeah, but that's just a very personal thing. I can read a whole novel for like a few scenes with one character. Where, yeah, so that that's just me. I'm very character-bound sometimes. To uh, get back to your um, idea of that there are different versions of Babylon 5, um, I think this is rather interesting if you think about this concept because we we're, if we go back to literature, then we're at um, yeah researching of, of editions. Mm. There are, yeah, like, like if you... Um, like a whole different um, thing would be looking to the first, the very first version of uh, Tom Sawyer, mm -hmm. for example, and taking a look at now and uh, a version from, from today, of course, depending for which audience it is, but um, you can be rather sure if you don't explicitly buy the original workout from uh, I'm sorry, I, I don't know the, the, the date right now, but if you don't explicitly look for this, you will certainly have a different version of this book because there are changes in it, because there are some phrases that no longer work because no one would understand them. Um, then, of course, there's racism and stuff like that. That is, if especially if it's for, for children, that's cleaned out for obvious reasons. Um, and it, it would be interesting to see these kind of different versions, these different editions of Babylon 5 um, and, and compare them to each other. What changed and everything, but there, I think there would be, I mean, there would be a, a major, major project. And on the other hand, I'm not sure if you were able to get all the informations to clearly say this is the first edition, this is the second, third most definitely not. And that even comes down to the fact that, um, you know, 
in many cases, uh, trying to figure out what was the plan at what point would lead you to uh, asking the creator of the show himself, who will give you different answers depending on when and how you ask him, which is perfectly fine, uh, but it just means like trying to reconstruct. There are very good projects to reconstruct what Babylon 5 would have looked like at certain points in time, and we can talk about those at some points, especially later on when we kind of see where some of these plots lead. And we can talk about like what the changes were and also why they were there, which is sometimes very important. Um, but there's also always going to be um, this kind of nebulous thing where also the creator of the show tells you himself, well, I, I don't know it because there are episodes where I just lost the notes at some point and rewrote them differently and things like that. And so there's always going to be this um, version of the show that is quite different. And uh, yeah. yes, yes. And in a way, this makes the prospect of Babylon 5 being rebooted, for example, which is in the talks, very interesting because it would be rebooted with the same creator. And so in a way, this would be also another version of Babylon 5 that is maybe closer to his original vision because nowadays he might have, you know, the weight of his name and a little bit more options in terms of how films and series can be made and it could be a streaming format. So maybe ultimately that one would end up being the closest to his original vision of anything and still be also the farthest removed from what we consider original Babylon 5. So it's just... Or the exact opposite way, since there are more options, since he has seen a lot of new things that can be made, get a few new inspirations um, and maybe a few comments he wants to, to make on rebuild <laughs> events. Yes. There, there are other quite a lot of options to to go there and plus there's this element that obviously now he's a very different person than back then yes but if you really want to collect uh and, and maybe discuss the different versions i think what is what can easily be done and what we have to do at some point is a comparison of all the seasons and of babylon 5 as its function as its political position from the view of what is the leadership like in these seasons what is the political and historical point of view like I think that is something that can be gathered together and that alone can uh, be an interesting discussion at some point definitely absolutely which also then we can do that at some point and then put up the question again of what do we do with season one how much sense does it make for us to leave it out um that would be interesting and yeah I mean, also inevitably this leads us to the uh, the fact that Babylon 5 can be a perpetual project where every time you finish the show, you could wait a year and then say, let's do this again and, <laughs> and see how have I changed, how has my experience changed, how has my perspective from the last viewing changed. And yeah, uh, which... having done this privately a few times, I can tell you it's a, it's a journey every time. It's never the same. How did my character crushes change? Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. As you grow older, you learn to appreciate. They are very important to me, but I have that on this, on this, this story level in a lot of books and a lot of movies and a lot of shows at the same time. So, Given the reception that I've seen recently, it would be interesting to see like how many times you have to rewatch the show until your crush finally lands on Franklin. <laughs> and what do you do with your life then? I mean, why? And that is, People really don't like him at the moment, at least in the last few like podcasts and such that I've seen. He is getting a very hard time. Yeah, well, I think we still have a lot of movement left to change that. Yes. <laughs> I think as a topic on, on its own. But I mean, it's so difficult because yes, he's annoying. But he, I mean, he, he he I think he is attractive. Just the actor, 
And nobody is disputing that. There are episodes where he takes his shirt off and people are continuously amazed. I mean, I mean, what what I was just thinking was also, I don't want to live through the pandemic with him. No. <laughs> no. And I think, Definitely well, I think before COVID, I could not have said that, but now I can say not with him. <laughs> not any, not any advice or anything from him. Londo and Vera as like a little community apartment complex. Yeah, I could see, but him, no. That would be difficult. Okay, the kosh would be rather interesting. I mean, <laughs> you have to to wear the mask anyway. <laughs> He's just absolutely laughing his ass off in his encounter, sort of being like, "I was prepared the whole time." Oh, it it would be awesome to to have like, okay, we can't go out because there's a pandemic. Come on, I show you a few of my favorite movies, and then <laughs> please tell me what you think about them. Yes, that would be hilarious. Yeah. Shall we talk about the actual episode? I just want to say this was the longest first impressions we've ever had. That <laughs> it can only get better from here on. We like to put a big timestamp in here, right? <laughs> guys. We we talked a little bit about what we think about how stories work, but if you actually want to hear us talk about the episodes, skip twenty minutes in. But as far as I know, as I know the Babylon Five fans, they actually I think they would be interested in that part as well. Yeah, and give them the option. Yeah. Um. The actual episode. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of things happen. We have three big main plots uh, to go into. Do we have any contenders of um, what you would want to put front and center? Otherwise, we can just start with the uh, Narn and Centauri side of things because that's what the episode starts out with in terms of scenes. Um, I'm has to have preferences, so... I also don't think that I have an order that would make especially much more sense. So, In this case, uh, I can say I find it quite nice that we um, start the show by looking at the attack at Ragash 3. We, the, the conflict between the Centauri and uh, the Narn is front and center in the beginning of the show, and it is here now, which for me is a kind of nice reminder that this is what the universe is preoccupied with. Like we've seen everything happening on Babylon 5. We've seen everyday things on Babylon 5 and the small little problems and crimes that they have to deal with. But by and large, as a normal person in this universe watching TV, this conflict that started with Ragesh 3 it is now moving on to Quadrant 37. This is the big thing that is happening. And this is also uh, where I think <laughs> things have built up the most linearly, where we start with a small skirmish where the Nan take off a big victory, and now we end with basically the complete opposite of that, where, um, yeah, the Centauri through Londo uh, and a weird illicit pact um, deal a terrible blow to the Nan regime and basically end every everything that we've talked about as Babylon 5 being this big project of diplomacy just gets blown out of the water immediately. It feels to me more like no one is the winner considering how Lander reacts because obviously the the death of, of what, what was it, 10,000 of Narns wasn't anywhere on his agenda. Therefore, I think it's more like a lose on every side. Yes. Totally. It was... It was totally interesting to see him have these regrets. Um, and also really terrifying that 
I mean, he always speaks in these in these in these older terms of the old republic of this old power built up on this terror, but seeing that executed like that is totally not what he had in mind and not what he really wanted, and that was very satisfying, honestly, to see, and also very very terrifying. But I would like to say that now that you say that we see Babylon Five blow up, what you said first, mm-hmm. or the function, and um, what I found interesting here is that. Um, I think it was in, the, in one of the first discussions. I don't know if I didn't write that down, but I think it was even in the first um, conversation um, um, that 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 um, um, Londo accused the Nan of not keeping their agreement, of not venturing into that part of, of, of space. And Jakar said that it's an agreement made by Forrest or made with a gun to his head or something like that. Yeah. And therefore it is worthless. And this... Um, kind of shows that this conflict is so old and so frozen that here, I mean, if, if you argue on that level, um, which Descartes argues, diplomacy is not possible, although he, of course, has a point if you have such an agreement. Mm. So there really, I think it's a very dangerous pet situation before anything blows up at all. And that's like a foreshadowing that I found nicely written in that episode. Although I, I think it's interesting that I wouldn't even call it a, a, a pat situation in this uh, because in the beginning of this episode, actually, it feels like the Narn have succeeded. In the first episode, the Narn take over um, a Centauri colony, and by the end of the episode, they have to give it back, and they have this big diplom- diplomacy where they are clearly in the wrong, forcing people to make these confessions that are clearly under the rest. So they are clearly the bad guys here. And now we have this situation where the Nan have put more military pressure on the Centauri and the Centaurum is willing to give in. Londo gets the, the orders that, yeah, we're going to give up this, uh, this, uh, these claims. And uh, ultimately, what, what you say, Jakar is shown in a much stronger position arguing for this as well. I just said that diplomacy in general not, was between these two parties was in a dangerous part situation with that argument, not the whole thing. Okay. So I agree. Yeah. Though I was really happy to see the rather well-made reflection of the car at the end after their battleships and everything was destroyed, that he was clearly thinking clearly and saying, okay, can't be this, can't be this, can't be this. Yes. Um, because I already felt it coming like, okay, he's just, he will accuse again the Centauri and they will start again with at, at, at zero. Um, and therefore, I was really happy to see this point there. Totally. But it also suddenly made the universe that we know seem so small and that something that is happening so much bigger just that he come, that you sit down and he come to the conclusion, there is a party we don't even know about that was so big, I think. And I think this ties into uh, also the fact that we see the Nan succeed here. What we see there is Jakar is good at his job. Like he is this, and we start, started talking in this podcast about him with this little handkerchief and this little mannerism stuff, and he still has those. He has a very heavy schedule in the form of three yes. humans in his bar and like wandering around his in his bathrobe. So he has all these quirks, but at this heart, he is very good at what he does. This is why uh, the Nan strategy got so close to succeeding. And this is also why in the face of everything blowing up, he has this ability to take a step back and be like, 
this is bigger than whatever feud I have with the Centauri. This is something more dangerous. And we got a very small glimpse of him being reflective of that when he talked to Catherine about the ant that gets picked up and can't explain it. Like, he has this knowledge of greater forces being part of the universe, and this for him is now the spotlight. Something noticed us, and this is terrifying, truly terrifying, far beyond any politicking that he might do. What I also really um, like to appreciate here is the conversation that uh, Sinclair and Jakar had after his busy schedule was done. Because Sinclair basically accused Jakar of behaving like abused children that fight back too hard. Like, and that I find interesting, and I think um, I don't want to draw any parallels here at the moment, but I think you can use that on a lot of conflict that are very old, that you have someone who was attacked, um, who then fights back too hard and loses, uh, at some point, loses uh, support and sympathies. And um, I said that in a few of our last episodes that from Sinclair we often get speeches that I feel are written like really wishful thinking, are written very idealistic. In a lot of situations you want to have someone like Sinclair there. And how he puts that here, how he comes really to one fair level with Jakar and acknowledges everything they went through and just begs him to not go too far, to stop breaking agreements and to, to not overstretch that. Um, still and being fully aware of their fate and their, their past is something not many people are able to do. If someone fights back brutally, you often ignore that they were attacked in the first place and then that gets lost. And he's able to, to put that on the table and still ask him to stop. And that is something that is uh, very rare, I think. Yeah, and I mean, this is what makes Sinclair uh, so so great in a lot of situations because he's most of the time he's not like your behavior is a problem but he goes from the way i understand you mm. and in the in even in he's even doing it in a way where you believe him where you think yeah he is really understanding what i went through and that's how you get people to think in a different way to see to acknowledge okay there are other options there are other perspectives and considering his background this is an amazing ability from him totally totally i mean this is like like all, almost a therapeutic therapeutic um yeah act he's he's doing there and i think this is one of the moments where this finale has some strength in tying a lot of things together because yes yeah, so much of the season we spent on sinclair dealing with everything that he went through in the Membari War. And very importantly, we've seen that he's not successful in doing that. He very much needs therapy himself because he has his weird hero complex. But at the same time, we've also consistently seen and illuminated from very different directions that he has this ability of not carrying this grudge through of forming a connection with Dylan and of being able to tell Jakar this. Although I have to say, I also find the answer that Jakar gives, both in that scene and then later on, at the same time completely understandable, where he's like, okay, you tell me I'm like an abused child that lashes out, but then you also have to understand I have no other choice. It's not like the abused child is sitting there calculating what self-destructive or not self-destructive behavior can I choose now. It's going to do something like that because there is no other option to act. There is no other way to approach the situation for somebody in, in, in those shoes. And so this is all Jakar asks of Sinclair, of saying like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know how bad it can be. 
but at the same time, there is nothing else to do, which is just highlighting the tragedy of the situation. Yes, but also putting the option out there of let me know if you see another option that is actually fair for you. Yeah. We talked about the Narn side of things now a little bit. Um, we also talked a little bit already about what we think about how the Centauri approached the entire thing, but I think also Londo has a few very good moments in this episode where I think, even though I consider what he's doing a very big mistake, at the same time, he does feel very competent at certain points. And for me, one of the big things is that he gets approached by Mr. Morden again, and he is actually taking a few turns that I not necessarily expect from a character in a show like this. Like when Morgan starts talking about, oh, I can fix this problem for you and starts flattering him, Londo is pretty brusque and saying, yeah, I've heard this before. I'm not falling for it that easily. He's still going to fall for it, but there's definitely this awareness there that, yeah, if somebody comes on and promises me this perfect solution to something, there's going to be a price for that and it's going to be horrible. And Londo never loses sight of that, and he keeps being aware of that. It, for him, feels much in the same way as Trekar, like he's doing this and making this mistake, knowing full well it is one, because he feels this is the only thing to do. At least that was my impression. I'm curious how that matches up with yours. Um, I, I understand um, the, this, this context. Um... And to a certain degree, I would say, yes, this is correct. But on the other hand, it doesn't feel like Lando has that much of pressure comparing to Jakar. I think, and I think the, the wall is uh, behind, behind Jakar's back is a bit closer than to Lando. And Lando had, could have still the, the option of saying... No, I'm not doing what you want from me, Morden. And I mean, the the Centauri already said, okay, here, Nan, you can have it. And yeah, I mean, when we saw Mr. Morden for the very first time, we asked ourselves, what is his... <laughs> Sorry. When we saw Mr. Morden for the very first time, we asked ourselves, what is his technique? Is it an interrogation technique or is it something like telepathic? What, what he can do, we don't know that yet. And um, what I think we see here in, in, in Lombo, um, so I don't know if I would describe him competent, actually. Sure. Um, because on an emotional level, I think we see him in deep regret. We see him in deep distress and in terror of what he kind of more or less accidentally had done. And we see Mr. Martin constantly triggering this part out of him if that is just by the things he says or if he has any other abilities we cannot say but it's just Mr. Martin constantly knows how to speak to this part that mm. kind of is existent in Londo and um, so I think we see him dealing with this part of himself and as it seems here although he is full of regret for now he's kind of giving into that and losing maybe even losing to that that would be an interpretation but that's yeah what we see, I think. I, I can totally buy that, and I think it's very much the case where the the reasoning, the rationalization he gives himself 
I would say is very similar to Jakar, but I also completely agree with you that the validity of that is very different. And I think a big part of this is that Jakar still feels very much like he is speaking for the Narn as a whole. Whereas with Londo, we've consistently seen he's not. He is speaking for this weird, like, idealized past version. And the actual Centaurum, his actual government, consistently has been much more diplomatic in in what, uh, whatever is ha has been happening, whether that was the incident at Ragesh 3, where they were willing to give in, or now. And so I think this is also what still makes the Narn as a whole society out to be much more the aggressors in this situation still, even though they have been oppressed in the past. At this moment, they are definitely the ones uh, making the moves that move the galaxy closer towards a conflict. Whereas with the Centauri side, it hinges very much on Londo himself, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think that. that's that's the problem, that it's way more on him, his personal decisions, his personal preferences, especially since you have this contrast between him and his, um, uh, his, his political pendant. Therefore, yeah, it, it feels more wrong because it's just an individualized decision for an entire um, species. And it, he's kind of isolated in both directions, right? On the authority side, his government is saying, yeah, I guess we give in. And on the other side, you have Veer as another individual centauri who sees Mr. Mon says, wait, what? What are you being promised? Like, who is this? Why is he here? Why are you listening to him? Like, in both directions, you see that both on personal level and a professional level, there are people around Londo who aren't making the same decisions here. Yeah. <clears throat> also, yes, the Narn are the active force mm. in the conflict at this point, but also because the Centauri are kind of in this passive position constantly, um, without Mr. Morden constantly interfering and constantly playing around with Londo, um, the conflict would still grow kind of cold, maybe, or at least would not be so close to an escalation. Mm. Um, so whoever Mr. Martin is, he definitely has the interest to keep on the Centauri's side the potential for an escalation going because without his meddling, it would probably not be at least that close to it. To keep the fire burning. Yes, you need yeah. the fire for some reason. Now that we are in this plot, before you go on, I think uh, at this point, the Centauri Republic would be, if they were moving in any way, I think it would be more on the on the on the financial side. Mm. Like, okay, you doing something we don't like, so you don't no longer get this trade route that's important for you, or this and that stuff like this. Not not an attack and and destroying things. Like more on the on, on a level like we 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 would have it on the on the same version now. I mean, this is kind of what we see in the very first episode, right? When Londo, Londo's first instinct is to be like, okay, the Narn finally openly attacked something. I can now try and build this power block of all the unaligned worlds and align them with the Centauri Republic against the Narn. Mm. And this would be kind of this idea, yeah, let's just pressure everybody who is weaker than us to sanction them and to cordon them off and blockade them so that the Narn ultimately don't don't really get anything. They might gain one planet or two, but they lose so much more connection to everyone else. 
which on one hand would be a way of resolving or at least continuing this conflict in a colder way, but at the same time it would also massively diminish what Babylon 5 can do, because the less interaction there is between worlds, the less trade there is, the less effective this haven of peace can be. Yeah, though I think on the other hand, if they would go the, the way of closing off trade routes and stuff like that, Babylon 5 could still um, try to make them communicate again. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's something different if you close a door or if you, or if you shoot someone. Yes. So I think there would be more options to really handle it than, than yeah, like, like the destruction of, of anything. But then we also see what this would require is somebody who is on Babylon 5, believes in Babylon 5, and believes that it has this potential to be kind of the table that the Narn are being forced to. And I think if, if we learn anything about Londo in, in this episode, it's what he says, nothing can ever be changed. There is this fundamental belief on his side that ultimately this is all pointless and not really leading anywhere. Yes and no. I think if it comes to the Narns that mm. this kind of sticks, but on the other hand, I don't think he's thinking this in um context of the other species. I think if it comes to to the Len and and um the Membari or mm. it comes to humans, he's on the different diff completely different um point of view than if it's about the Narns. Therefore, I think there's there's potential. Maybe let's talk about the attack for a moment because um Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. The Hell Spider spaceship. I was so surprised that we saw them here. I didn't remember seeing them in season one. I mean we did see them once before, right? Yes, still. They had a lot of scenes where you could see them clearly. Mm. What were you thinking of them? Or maybe let's start at the beginning. What were you thinking at the reappearance of Mr. Morden? Yeah, um, I was a bit surprised because I didn't think to see him this quickly again. Okay. Um. And yeah, well, that's that's kind of it. No, yeah, I mean that's enough. <laughs> um. Yeah, and the the unknown. The Mr. X species. Um, yeah, like like I just said, it was, yeah, spider, spaceship. Um, and yeah, I don't know um, with, with this uh, ghost-like or, or um, camouflage appearance. They had that later. It, it kind of feels like a bit... Android Star Wars like though I'm not sure if I'm thinking about if it's the new movies I'm thinking about not the newest mm -hmm. but yeah I think that that's I think this this could be possible um on the uh, on, on one hand I was happy to see okay this is obviously not something humanoid looking and then I was back to Mass Effect again and already hearing the Reaper in the background. So the question is, is it organic or not? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know. It kind of feels like mechanical organism, if this makes sense in some way. 
I, right. it does because we've already like think of infection right like this is something that exists in this universe so maybe that's it yeah like like mm, i have to to think like of of, of the the series farscape mm. where you have uh this this uh yeah living spaceships i think they were called Le uh, leviathan or something like that I remember correctly yeah and yeah, this this also is this this weird mix, mixture of of organic and and mechanical at least looking parts, and I kind of would settle in somewhere there. Mm. Not sure if more mechanical or more more organic on the side uh, on 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 the scale, but yeah, this this direction certainly, at least that feels to me like it. It, it would be surprising if they had like. Um, like like insects, this this um, yeah, protection. This like uh, chitin exoskeleton. Yeah, that that would also be an be an option. Though I'm not sure if this would be well, well let's say too boring in there. I mean, I would be open for for both sides. Though I would more lean into this mechanical um, thingy. Though it would be interesting to to see how Morden communicates with them, and on the other hand, to see um, what exactly he is. Yeah, he, because he is kind of this weird interface between them and Londor, right? But then, why make him human? Like, why not so, anything else really at this point? Or why not communicate directly? Yeah, but I I, I would think that putting him into a human shape is a rather smart thing because the humans are the well let's say new players mm. uh, on, on the board and therefore there are a lot of things the other species which are on a lower term with each other that are unknown not understandable they are quite a lot they are scattered everywhere and therefore if some weird guy coming over hey i have a proposal for you it might not seem that um suspicious they are kind of this unknown like humans are kind of this unknown power factor in the galaxy right like nobody quite knows what, what can we do them. yeah because we've already learned in this first season they massively won the dilga war and then completely got obliterated in the Mimbari war so it's really a coin flip how things <laughs> are going to go so if they if a random human tells you i can make a the military outpost disappear there's like some chance that it might be true but also probably not so yeah i can definitely see that um yeah if we're talking about the attack sequence uh, in and of itself uh i have to say once again i i quite like how the narn are portrayed in this like their entire outpost looks very makeshift like it's hulls of ships welded together to make this big spaceship structure and I mean, yeah, we, we've seen uh, one of these spider ships blow up the, the radar vessel in 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 Science and Portraits this season. And I mean, this was pretty much the same. It took a little moment, but yeah, more than anything, it feels very much like a replay of Vagash 3 to me. Just a big force suddenly coming in. And I mean, even as uh, Jakar talks about this, he, he says, well, everything got destroyed, even the records of it. There are some candidates that could do this technically, like the Membari and the Wallons, where he just says, well, but they wouldn't do it, though. Like, there's political reasons why they wouldn't. But 
even though this attack was super overwhelming, we've seen in the show, and he tells us that technically this is something that can be done. So it's it's kind of hard to gauge what we're really dealing with here. Anything else on the attack itself? <clears throat> no. Um, then uh, the, the only thing that really stuck out to me on, on this rewatch is uh, when Londo learns about this, Morden talks to him about this, and what Morden ultimately says is, well, people back home don't care how you did it, they're just glad you did. And this for me is actually quite a pivotal moment, because up to this point, you could have maintained that actually the Centaurum is kind of pragmatic, right? They get attacked, they are willing to give in, they are willing to give up Quadrant 37. That seems kind of fine, but now we see, yeah, but if, like, magically a, a person manages to wipe everything out, they are also not going to ask any questions, which should be a massive red flag. Like, if if anybody calls up your your government and says, here, I have an unsolicited military force that I can wield, people should ask follow-up questions, <laughs> yeah. and they don't. Which also, once again, shows how Mr. Morton tries to wake up this side in the Centauri society that is kind of a bit sleepy at the moment, I would say. Yeah, they, they, he gives them the danger in the night, you could say. They didn't have it or forgot that something like this mm. exists, and now it kind of reappeared. And that's scary. Yes. Um, I would just like to mention that here in my notes, just suddenly out of, out of just as a one point, I wrote down, everything feels nervous and is kind of on fire. That was just what I in the middle just felt like, okay, this feels like everything's burning. So just in general, it's just, it's, it's, it's sitting here outside of any plot, just beep, that is happening. Yeah. No, I can, I can see this. Um, and if we like move kind of towards the end of the Narn and Centauri plot in this episode, I'm pretty sure this is how um, how, how Londo feels, right? Like he is in this weird state where, yeah, he is kind of going into this deal and he is kind of accepting it, but he's clearly uncomfortable with it. Like, I don't know how much he cares about Narn lives now particularly, but he's clearly shocked at how how big the stick is that he was handed. But... I think he cared in general mm. about killing 10,000 people. For me, it really felt like in that first moment, it was this shock of suddenly he didn't care of who or what it was anymore. Like, oh my God, there's, there were 10,000 intelligent, sentient beings. And he had the power to kill them, basically, in that moment. That's what I saw, which I think is an important moment for him as a character. But yeah. What I want to add is you you said uh, that everything feels nervous and on fire. Um, yes and no to that. Um, so far we had this situation quite a lot, but usually it was directed to, towards Sinclair. Now we have everyone. Is, and or, or um, let's say we had different groups that were in charge. But now it's like the whole station is sitting on coals and waiting. It's sitting on coals. The fire is not there yet, but it's nervous because he kind of feel like it could start here and there. And yeah. it's it's like everyone is, is involved in, in some way. 
And I think that's the important part here because yeah, it's otherwise it would just feel like another Monday um, on, on Babylon yeah. 5 so far. But I think this is what makes it a bit different than the other episodes. I think this is uh, something that season one kind of does consistently is slowly zooming out from the station. We've noticed that in the past three episodes, we've spent more time outside of the station, literally going to the planets, talking about affairs outside of the planet, going more into Membari politics for, for the land and this kind of stuff. And yeah, it feels like with Sinclair, we already know he can be in this. Everything is kind of nervous and on fire mode because he has to juggle all of Babylon 5 at all times. And now we start zooming out. And the more we learn about the rest of the universe, we see every single ambassador is doing exactly the same thing. And they have these huge responsibilities for these massive events happening. And yeah, everybody is kind of dancing on the volcano right now. And it's uh, not going so great. Um, before we continue, I have a question. And yes. That is that I only have this sugar glibber and I don't want to drink it, but I would like to ask if we could open up that sweet wine. Yes. I go to it, then I would organize us classes for that. You can. <laughs> new topic, new drink. I'm opening a wine Michael brought. Um, and what is the next plot we're going to discuss? Well, it's basically where Londo leads us because his very last scene, I think, is kind of important in how he deals with this um, problem. Like you say, everything feels like it's on fire. And I think for him, this is very much the case. Who wants to start with a drink? Well, I... <laughs> for him, this is very much the case. And I feel like Londo's natural response is... Oh my god, I killed an entire colony and now diplomacy is going to blow up. I can't change that. So he turns to the one thing that he can actually affect. And this is, I'm going to go to my friend who is in the hospital and I'm just going to be by his side. And it does feel to me like in a weird way, like he's kind of doing this to seek atonement for what just went horribly wrong. Because I feel like on some level, he completely knows that this isn't great, what's happening. And... He's kind of doing this this calculation. Well, I guess I did a deal with the devil, so I, I at least got to do one good deed before the day is over. But also, I felt like his mourning and his worry about Garibaldi was honest. Oh, I don't think it's disingenuous at all. I think it's, I don't even think it's necessarily conscious the way he does this. It's just he needs to do something that makes him feel better, and that is staying with a genuine friend. Though you could also think of it as, um, I did something rather horrible, but at least I can do something good now and stay by the side of a friend who's yeah. in trouble. Yes, that too. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interpretation. And also, I think there are a lot of layers in one yeah, person. Absolutely. absolutely. Maybe then we can make a little jump now that we have this brought up before we talk about the whole details of um, the Earth plot. And mm -hmm. um, maybe jump to that moment where Ivanova and Jakar and Natos are in that train. What is it called? The, the little skyway that goes like through the center of the station. Yeah, because, I mean, it's like the losses of the day kind of connect all of these parties that had these hot debates that were always on the brink of this big conflict and we now Rondo and uh, and uh, the humans connect over Garibaldi and about 
these two big losses, also the non and the humans cannot have this new level of talking. And what were you thinking of Jakar's way to approach Ivanova like that? I think it's a glimpse on his private side. I would feel with Jakar, I still feel like he is very much the political side of him and the private side of him. And the one that we kind of see as this mustache twirling villain throughout most of the season is very much the political animal that he is. But I do think there is a completely separate private side of him. And this is him in a very rare moment showing this in public and being like, this has been a terrible day for everyone. And you think it was honest too. So you think it was not manipulative. I don't think it is manipulative, especially because I believe Jakar would know enough about Ivanova to know that this is not not going to work. Because my problem is that I also think that also in the way it is acted, but also I have heard his voice so often in this overacted, overplayed drama in discussions that I I have a problem of listening to him and taking him seriously just in that second, mm. although I know it would fit the character better. Um, and I think that is a problem that if you live and work with Jakar, you can have in very important situations, I guess. I think one thing just in terms of what he says that really convinces me that he's genuine here is that he is placing a huge amount of weight on the death of a single human, of the president. And I feel like that is not something that he usually does. We had the previous situations with the dock worker strike, for example, where his Jaquan F got lost. And he was very dismissive of, oh, yeah, a human dock worker died. Well, guess what? I lost a shipment today. And like in this political angle, he was like able to completely go over this. But here he's like, we lost 10,000 people in an entire colony. You lost one ship with your president on it. But I, I will talk about this from my side. Like both of these tragedies are in any way equivalent. Because I also, I feel like what I heard out of there, uh, what for me a theme in this show is, is, uh, I worry about the nearest future of what is happening to our world and what is happening next to our worlds, to all of our worlds. I think that's kind of in it. But I also would think that he's putting so much weight in this human death is because he is the president. Yeah. And I mean, uh, I'm not sure how to, how to phrase that. Let me think about it for a moment. Yeah, well, we can cheers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, see if you like the wine. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like this, this um, again, this an important person died, a person with a big name. Mm. Um, maybe this is just my dismissive side again uh, showing, but it's usually that if some random worker, a random person without a big name dies, then no one cares. I mean, if, if you hear like, oh yeah, this, there's this and this happened and someone died as, oh, and when you hear like, oh yeah, this, I don't know, actor or singer or stuff like that died, then it has a different impact usually. And it kind of feels like this to rule. This is definitely an important factor there. Although I would also say what, what from political Jakar I would expect is usually what you also see when a big celebrity dies, there's also always going to be somebody who flaunts how 
I am not affected like this and he should just be treated like a person like any other because I didn't like the songs he wrote, like this kind of deal. And for me, it's a little bit like the equivalent would be the Pope dies. And if I, as a not very religious person or so, go up to somebody and say, I recognize that for you, this is a massive deal, a deal that changes your world as much as if like 10,000 people of my world died. That is showcasing a sign of I am giving you a certain measure of respect right now that maybe isn't always expected. And for Jakar, he's definitely not somebody that I would expect to do that uh, willy-nilly. Yeah. Meaning we have to say, but wouldn't you agree that it's also part of his job as an ambassador to recognize in this political context there's someone important that does and everything. So I think, yeah, there's, again, a lot of layers coming together at this point. Definitely. And also, it's just that we don't know yet who, or he, who we know. He, he, or, I mean, <laughs> who knows what now? <laughs> and what is the now? Fuck, he's only built it to Jakarta. <laughs> I mean... It is unknown who destroyed the outpost. It is also unknown who killed the president and why. Hmm. Um, at least if you're that bitchy woman on... She is a senator, a person of great power and intellect. Do I look like I care? Mm. Um, so it's unclear what these attacks are the start of. It's unclear where or how they are coordinated and um so i think um recognizing the the death of the president as a tragedy um just as these ten thousand dead nine is kind of recognizing that both the worlds have been shaking up that's what i wanted to say that they don't know what we know <laughs> i mean um it's unclear what kind of consequences that has <laughs> You get the point. <laughs> if this is of the So is Chica we or they? I don't know. But I think we can keep it. That's fine. Yes. Uh, I glaube, du musst ein Stück mehr vorne. Yeah. So. Ich glaube, um, Yeah, that just just a little something I wanted to add. Because what I definitely feel in this episode is the feel for what's going to happen next on all the sides. And since they have all of these unknown aspects, um, they have this deep connection of just not knowing what the hell is going on right now. And uh, yeah, not knowing what the hell is going on because nobody knows who is responsible, but also I think you already mentioned nobody knows what the implications are going to be. Like everybody knows this is bad, but at the same time, nobody really knows, uh, like Jakar mentions in this conversation, well, I guess the diplomatic talks are moot now. It doesn't really 
Yeah, because you don't know who I who can I trust, who can I exactly. rely on, who's telling the truth. Who's telling the truth, but it's also like from the nuns perspective, okay, like what 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 do you do now in this non centauri conflict? Because that's not your priority anymore. You have to figure out what happened here. So how do we deal with the centauri? I I guess we don't. I guess we don't put any more pressure on them and just try to figure out what happened. And that is just a con that is just a situation that the Nan haven't been in ever, as far as we know from the show. They never had a bigger priority than getting back at the Centauri. So this is just a completely unknown territory to them. And for for Earth Alliance, I I figure it's it's much the same case. Like the the sudden like death of Santiago just puts everything into turmoil. Yeah, though on the other hand, it's um. The officials say it's just some some malfunctioning. I think was was told, and the only one who has an idea of what happened is Sinclair and Garibaldi, of course, and no one believes them. Which is again this this typical, yeah, theme of of the let's say outcast or exiled somewhat in this in this context who knows something really important and are not believed in because it's yeah there's there's no bulletproof evidence it's is far too much of a maybe and of course if you have an easy explanation at hand you are less willing to believe in something that complicates things that show off a threat that you have to deal with easier to just close off your eyes and say yeah everything's fine just a little malfunctioning although you could also you could also um just argue or at least have the idea that earth force is kind of quick on completely adapting the malfunction because i would expect um nowadays if if something like that happened that we would first assume it was an accident Mm -hmm. and always keep this assumption up but gather all the information we can get to find out if that is actually true and that is something that we here see earth for us as not really being interested in i think our characters are isolated in a very specific way and maybe the americanness of the show comes through here a little bit where it's very quick that the authority structures of Earth Force say this was a malfunction and just keep silent. And it's not necessarily that they shut down everything, but they're like, you guys on Babylon 5 are not going to head the investigation into what happened here. And as long as we don't know anything else, just shut your mouth and we assume it's the it's the um, malfunction. At the same time, this entire episode, especially with the swearing-in of the Vice President Clark, is very much coded with American assassination of, of JFK. And there is no term that is more sort of uh, sort of embroiled with the conspiracy theories like that assassination. So I feel like while nobody on the official side believes our characters, I can also, I would assume that in Earth Alliance as a whole, most ordinary citizens are already theory crafting. Because the show makes a point of giving us this um, this report on, oh, the vice president has left the ship shortly before it blows up because apparently he was sick or, or something like that. Like, I don't believe, I can't believe that people in the universe watch this and don't immediately come up with the same kind of 
conspiracy theories like we see in every big assassination in the real world. And I, for our characters, this is a horrible place to be because there is a huge amount of people who are willing to believe any conspiracy you probably could put in front of them. And then the government structure that isn't interested in actually investigating the conspiracy that might actually be there. So it's terrible in all directions. And of course, it's also how quickly they give out this answer that yeah. it, it was a malfunction because everyone who thinks a bit longer about this knows, okay, this, this is far too quick. You can't yeah. find out this quickly what happened, especially if you have a ship this big just blown into pieces, try to collect them. It's, it's like, I don't know, you have, have a puzzle with just one color, it drops to the floor and the floor is the same color. Try to find all pieces. I mean, it's also everybody knows that all channels were jammed beforehand. Babylon 500, everybody else, like even on TV, they were saying, we don't know why the speech has been delayed. Yeah. So very clearly there are, there are things that need to be resolved that haven't been resolved that quickly. What I, now that you already started drawing like historical parallels, I have two in mind for this. Mm -hmm. Um, first one is, and now they, these are two, 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 uh, um, uh, incidents in, uh, German history. Uh, first one is, oh God, how do I say that in English? Reichstag burned. When, when our Reichstag, our parliament burned down in 1933, I kind of, do you get where I'm going? Sure. Okay. <laughs> I think that's so critical. No, I, I, I kind of, kind of, um, felt like reminded of this big incident that uh, uh, changed the political structure of Earth um, and it is kind of kept extremely nebulous of who did it and where it came from um, um, and reactions were kind of quick and kind of fast because after after the um, Reichstag burned down in 1933 you basically you had the Nazis in the position of power before but you still had a functioning society and then you had like mass arrests and forbid um, for, um, and political parties were forbidden, and kind of, kind of a society that could fight back, or um, mm. could question any kind of political decisions was kind of at least very, very much disabled. And not completely. Of course, you cannot always erase it completely, but it was extremely harshly attacked after this. And I think has it ever been resolved who burned it down? Like one hundred percent? I don't think so. Um, there are so many theories. It was the Nazis, it was the communists. Anyone could have uh, definitely. There, there are arguments for both sides. I'm not sure actually if it has ever been solved or if there is something most historians agree on at this point. Um, but that's what it reminded me of for once. And I think you mentioned another one. Another one, yeah. I mean, for the other one, you have to. I mean, now we have seen that Clark, the vice president, now assumes presidency. I mean, it's good that we now have a president, at least at first. I think no one wants to see. Um, I mean, humans have watched this incident live on TV. So I think a society that is this in shock or whatever, no one wants to see them without leadership, without a president. So, of course, they step in. But from our next point, we would actually have to know more about the course Clark takes next. So maybe we should discuss that later. Yes, uh, but we, we can talk about this, especially the speech Clark gives immediately after. Um, I mean, you mentioned definitely the fact that they can swear on the vice president right away is a hugely big deal because uh, throughout human history, uh, 
any conflict that sort of also on succession is is a horrible deal. Like having a system in place to get somebody new into power is like one of the main things why you want to have a democracy as a functioning thing. For example, it's that's nice to have, and um, so that they do this so quickly, um, we can fault them, of course, for saying oh. They don't investigate enough and such. But on the other hand, I can also see, like, for this state to function in any way, the first thing, the first priority they have to is give people a sense of we are still in control. There's somebody in charge, and now the now now everything after can be resolved in some way. Um, we can talk about both what Clark does, but also I think it's still noteworthy what Santiago was doing before he got killed here because. From the very moment he got elected, he had this sort of weird tinge of we want to focus on on Earth policy and stuff. But ever since then, every instance we've seen him in this show, he has been out there in the colony somewhere cruising around and doing his rounds. And the sense that I get from this is that right up until the very end, this was a president who was just desperately trying to gain approval of some sort. They mentioned like, him transferring at the point of Io, like very impressively in front of Jupiter, is gonna be great for voters and stuff like that. Like just this sense of he wanted to create big pictures of himself being in the alliance, being there and doing things. And I I find it interesting that Clark uh, in the aftermath immediately latches onto none of that, but what we learned about his campaign promises in the very beginning. What was your last sentence? Uh, I, I find it interesting that we get Santiago talking about Earth and then doing throughout the entire show very different things. And then the moment he dies, Clark goes back to the very first thing we heard about Santiago, talking about we have to do the yeah. create the world that he wanted, focus on our people to get through this. Also, he also mentioned a difficult time, which is also a question of what is he hinting at? What is going to be so difficult? I mean, there are already ideas, of course, we don't have a utopia here, but it's like he definitely talks about difficult times and about focusing on Earth and getting it through a difficult time. Um, and yeah, in, in, in general, a vice president, um, after this incident, stepping up and assuming this course that some voices in Earth society have been missing in the president before, um, feels a bit odd sure uh, well I'm, I'm not really sure what what to find of this because it's yeah his the the actions of of santiago were felt more like like pro alien like um even though i i said i go pro earth still feels like he's trying to make the connection though I, i'm missing far too many information here to to make a proper judgment of him as a character what his real motives were what he really wanted to do was it all for show like having some nice pictures um did he want to be remembered as a president that's going around a one president for the people um stuff like that or was it genuinely genuine him trying to connect aliens and humans and to to yeah strengthen this bond but his, his problem definitely was whatever his basic motivation was his problem was really 
finding the position and finding the approval to be able to connect both sides. What I sometimes had to think about was like when we hear when we have our CDU or whatever that tries to also catch on of the very conservative voices back into their realm, but then they are like also very progressive in some decisions and then everything falls apart. And that's what I sometimes thought of, no matter what his real motivation was, that's like the politics that reached me. I mean, what we definitely can say if we have Santiago as a president and we sit here and say, well, I don't really know what he stood for because I, I am lacking information. But me, that tells me, okay, he failed at the most fundamental thing of being a politician, which is communicate clearly what the heck he stands for. Yeah. Uh, of course, this is also what the show does. But if we give the show the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe this is what they intended, that's what I take away from it. On the other hand, if you um, don't make a clear stand, no one can really judge you. Yeah, I mean, this is... Therefore, he's like like this ghost-like appearance that no one can really grasp on. And I think it's harder to to anticipate, okay, what's his next move? Yeah. Or what is he really trying to do with this? And yeah, maybe if, if you ride that train a bit longer... It's him, like like him trying to not turn into a target, which ultimately, because he had no stir, yeah. um, appeared to be. But yeah, overall, it it feels a bit like this. And on the other hand, in contrast to this, Clark is like, yeah, this is what we do, and yeah, like like this. Uh, even though I have I say this, I hated to say it, but like what few strange people say nowadays, like, oh, this is finally someone who says, the who's, who puts his head on the table and says what he thinks, which is not necessarily a good thing because not everything you think is a good thought. <clears throat> but it's also interesting that Clark in doing that got a face because Santiago never got a face, right? Yeah, we just get Very face to, to the end, to his death. Yes. Uh, yeah, but like, like you say, uh, Clark immediately gets a face. He, he gets to make a speech, and it's not really much that we see of him here. But I think he does a handful of very clever things. For example, like you already mentioned, he starts talking about hard times. So everything, what everyone is feeling in this show, what we talked about um, with Nance and Tori, this feeling that everything is on fire and this will have terrible consequences. In all of our characters, we see this as a negative thing. For Clark, this is a positive. He says immediately, this assassination isn't the big event. This is the start of something, of something even worse. And I will get you through this. And he immediately instrumentalizes this for himself a little yeah. bit. And I think this is very clever of him because obviously as if you do this if you make people afraid of what comes next they are less likely to ask any questions of what just happened and they will more likely put their faith in you as somebody who s seems to recognize the threat for how big it is and kind of feeds into this fear and of course this is something where you get the masses with yeah yeah those that are uh let's say more educated, more knowing what what is happening around the world. Um, those would would see through this, or at least be like, ah, I don't trust you. But those are 
usually not the majority. And considering what um, Down Under looks like on, on B5, um, you can be rather sure it is everywhere uh, the same. And therefore, I mean, I think we would have like a big gap between those with knowledge and money and, and those without the majority being on the latter. And um, therefore, yeah, there, there are not enough people especially with, with power to say, hey, that's that's what's happening here, folks. Well, that also yeah, thing. Mm -hmm. well, okay. What I also always like to mention is that those that really see through these things are often either not in the position to say something, or they are isolated like our people on the station and are not organized well enough because um, 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 I would really not like to, 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 to picture most human societies as being so easily taken over by ideas like that, but just to really confront them in a manner that works, you have to be so well organized, you have to be so united, and all of the people that have a reason to look through them often come from so, so different yeah, parts of society or from so different sides that it's difficult to um, yeah, gain momentum, I guess. And not to mention the strength you need to do something like that. I mean, if you just think about going out and demonstrating... I would like to do this, but honestly, I don't have the strength to go out on a on a demonstration for several reasons. But um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, there are, there are all of these reasons, all of these different reasons. Yeah, I think what the the really insidious thing is that he kind of targets the people that are right in between. Like you have the masses down below will be completely like I honestly won't care like we yeah. see Garibaldi to trying to get them to care about some of their own to get to uh, that have been killed and they're like nah that was a snitch I don't give a shit so that's a problem uh, but and those that do care about the effects those are the ones that will easily believe when the government tells them this was a fusion reactor that blew up easiest explanation there you go I feel like what, what Clark is doing here, he's attacking everyone who is educated and who is critically skeptical of things, but he attacks this like re reptilian part of their brain that tells them something doesn't add up, it must mean something. But if you have even our characters, our hero characters who are questioning this kind of stuff, if they don't have access to any of the information that Garibaldi could give them of the plot that actually happened, all this means is that they will sit there and see there is the official explanation that doesn't add up, that doesn't make sense. And here's Clark telling me what just happened is the start of something bigger, a start of bad times. And so I feel like he does this horrible thing, which, you know, people like this, politicians like this are very good at. You catch the people who are thinking about the issues, who are interested, and give them an, a cool and interesting plot that they can latch onto, that they will invest themselves in without giving them any of the actual information. And this is the hard part, because those aren't necessarily people who are too stupid to do anything about it. They're just being misled in a very interesting way. Yes, also here I have to say the historical parallel I drew in the beginning is of course only fitting in part, because what the, the incident that I talked about was caused by someone and then used to blame the other side, while well, here we have this big incident that is not exactly immediately used to blame someone but just used to overthrow the system i just wanted to point out that i see that there are differences as well as parallels 
I mean, every sequel will like all the historical parallels and Babylon 5 even on South Seas, like, but it's, it's always good to mention no, that. I just didn't want to sound stupid. Um, so yes, this, this, this misleading, I had a point there, sorry. Go on talking. Um, yeah, maybe to, to go on there, um, he is, like you already said, he's selling fear. Mm. And it's like with the news, um, there are a lot of things that are important to report about, but usually those with, well, let's say that indulge the most fear in people is the one with the most time on TV. Um, even though if there is nothing to report on, maybe I, I cut in, in a world there, but when 9-11 happens, there was a lot of reporting, but it was a lot of talking, 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 but there was nothing to talk about. There were no informations. There were just pictures. It was really, really heavy set on emotions. But yeah, like I said, no informations. Yes, that. And that's usually something that would also fit in this line of, of selling fear uh, that you have with, with a lot of topics these days. 9-11 may have started something there because this is, as far as I know, one of, if not the first um, catastrophe happening that was filmed by, while it was happening. At least on that large scale. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm very glad that you make up this uh, comparison because that was actually one of the notes that I took down. If I didn't know that this was a show that was made in the 90s, especially the mm -hmm. aftermath, especially Sinclair talking about nothing is the same anymore, is something that I could easily see being also written in a response uh, to 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 uh, 9/11 as an event, and knowing for a fact that there are science fiction shows that were made in direct response to 9/11 that use exactly the same kind of imagery, and I think this is just one of these instances where um, it's interesting to see that Babylon 5 works on that level, and also then if we look at okay, this has obvious historical parallels made to 9/11 or or the Reichstagsbrand how much further back into history we suddenly go to pull these references uh, it just highlights like how influential and important 9-11 is, is, is that kind of thing yes and that this was written before 9-11 actually happened also kind of shows that if you look into certain historical processes on how society works very often you recognize without wanting to um to, 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 to put it to wave it against each other or to put anything into perspective or something but you recognize that you have these turning points, you have these happenings where you feel like now there was a before, there was an after, and everything was kind of pulled into one direction. What I had to think about now as you opened up this about the news was about when the um, when the war against Ukraine started and you always had these headlines, headlines that tried to cause an ass-watching from the West the fear of Russia is now going to start the big world war. And when you clicked on it and read the article, it was just just seeding doubts in supporting Ukraine, seeding this fear of, yeah, but, you know, if we go too far, we could all be at war. Um, and for me, when the Ukraine war started, was a big before and after moment, for example. And you just have them, I think, regularly scattered through history. And then you have to see which course you take and which course the world takes afterwards. 
to go back to where you said you don't really want to weigh them uh, against each other, but overall you can say that is that there's a certain kind of narration pattern that repeats itself. Mm. Um, not saying that that it's all the same and stuff that that would be um, stupid and unfair to to any anything that that happened but if you yeah analyze the the structures or what the people do there's a lot of things that yeah repeat themselves um, i did this in um university in a seminar about epidemics um and there is a lot of which is really scary a lot of narratives a lot of things that happened when um Corona was on on its way that you could find like in um, works of uh, about the Black Death. Yes, that was great. And Body poisoned the wells. Yeah, um, that the, was great to see. Yeah, like like there are a lot of structures, a lot of things where you would would when you if you if you read this like um, yes, you would read this and oh my gosh, the people they were so stupid. But if you then look to the the present, then oh, that looks awfully familiar. Yeah, and then you start really feeling uncomfortable if you see these rather similar patterns reappearing again and again. Because I think, of course, our our, our brain and our psychology kind of reacts in 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 similar ways. I think what I just meant with comparing was like. I didn't want to say like something like yeah something like that. Daniel Evan just happens every few years and then we change. <laughs> like some people do that and then you always come out with okay, so there are people uh, I don't know starving somewhere on Earth right now. So why are we talking about anything? That's something that's what some people take in these conversations and that I hate. Um, of course, but tell me with you. But of course, it's 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 totally uh, totally interesting to to compare and to find these parallels. Of course. Which, of course, doesn't lead to uh, something like, oh, history is repeating itself again and again. No, no. It's always in its own way, but you always find that some things uh, uh, can come up again centuries later in a different interpretation than, of course, yeah. Right, and what this show just kind of tells you is that when you find these patterns, it's very easy to, especially in hindsight, see that, okay, you, you can see certain things coming. If a big catastrophe happens, people have certain ways of reacting to that. And uh, we also see, like you just mentioned, knowing that on a pragmatic level and then actually believing that are two very different things. Like everybody could can look at uh, the, the Black Death or the Spanish flu and in theory come up with like a good idea of how rational people get in these situations and still everybody gets surprised when COVID comes around and that is uh, just something that like learning from history is also much easier said than done on, on every level. We've talked now a lot about the actual catastrophe that happens here. Um, we, we, we ought to talk a little bit more about the personal catastrophe for Babylon 5 uh, in the investigation leading up to this. And maybe we can talk a little bit about first the death of Petrov and um, Garibaldi's very charming attempt to, to get justice for his informant and then ultimately uh, his 
demise question mark I mean, I found it funny that you were so not surprised that this one security person whose face showed up a few episodes ago actually did something. Yes, yes. Uh, just to inform our dear lurkers, um, we watched it this time all together. Therefore, they had my immediate reaction. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it it like I mean this his appearance um, when when Gary Baldy fi finds this this stuff that that didn't get away from from B five, um, it it felt already suspicious to me. Random guy appearing, and she didn't call him. Like I don't know, it it feels wrong for a security guy like oh there was nothing much to do so i thought i would come here no a security guy wouldn't do this yeah he would stand there until his shift ends until someone um continues to do his jobs so yeah there is um this is absolutely wrong um maybe this this just triggered me a bit harder since uh my partner's uh, brother is working as a security guy um and yeah this it was just so, okay this this is a bad guy he is he will do something and then yeah he did something uh that was <laughs> surprising for me um so yeah that 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 plot line was therefore a bit boring for me because it wasn't it didn't feel interesting uh therefore and i have to admit i Maybe I I um wasn't that into it like in the the other things. Therefore, I I think we see this as in we are talking about patterns in history repeating, and this seems to be a pattern that repeats itself in uh, season one of Babylon Five. That the quote unquote mystery plots aren't necessarily uh, very big, like puzzle boxes for us to put together i i, I think is, especially in this case you know by the time we see uh, our traitor security guard he's already decided he's gonna shoot garibaldi so there's not really like much pretense he's like ah oh, I, I i just can't make up these numbers on this thing that you asked me for <laughs> and just adds it it's just like yeah man you're not even trying at this point um what for me always helps in these instances a little bit is just uh going on the lookout of okay but what does that tell me about the characters that i might be interested in and uh, in this instance this tells me garibaldi is a good detective we, we've seen this he is good at making connection he's good on following up on people he apparently has an informant network in down below good on him even though he seems fairly dismissive of people down below most of the time but he's also a person who is who who considers himself a very good judge of character. And I think this is something that we've seen throughout the season where he says, I'm suspicious of everyone all the time, uh, where we've seen that he's very critical of the government and any kind of authority. What he does is he trusts people. He's on this station because he trusts Sinclair and Sinclair put him there and such. So I, I feel like this is what it, Garibaldi is as a person. So... If he has at some point decided to trust security guy A here, um, once he's made that choice, this becomes a pretty big blind spot for him. And when all of these red flags pop up that you mentioned that, like you say, any security guard should become like incredibly suspicious about, he 
doesn't really. He has decided this is a trustworthy guy and he runs with that. And arguably to a fault where he gets shot in the back where a better security chief probably wouldn't have. On the other hand, you have to give him um, that, of course, he has to trust a few people somewhat blindly because otherwise you can't do this job because otherwise you would get paranoid and and see behind everyone um, a terrorist, a traitor or anything like that. Absolutely. And I mean, to some degree, we've seen Garibaldi do that, right? Like it's... Also, how how could he have gotten out of that situation without being shot? Like, what would he, if he, if he had noticed that something about that person was off and he was like, oh, you know what, I'm just going to take this with me and you'll go on a break and see you later. Or he could, could have looked at it and was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't recognize those numbers either. And still keep the numbers in mind and go, but, you know, but yeah. it's like, it's like at that point, it's like, how does he get out of it? Maybe call back up. Yes, but the guy hears that. Yeah, but he could, he, he could, could do it now. And I mean, the, the point is, of course, how you would, um, what, what, what the reasons you give out for this, um, I think the episode gives us a little bit of an answer here, and I'm very curious what you think about that, which comes a little bit later when uh, our bad guy posse in their beautiful suits has been killed off by our security guard, and he's like, ah, they shot at me first, and then I had to kill them, and the other security guard is like, yeah, but this weapon is cold, it would be hot if they had shot. And you see, like, clearly this guy understands that he's being bullshitted and they just look at each other and have this mutual understanding of, yeah, no, they cool off pretty quickly. Like, that's just something that happens. And it feels very much like this dirty cop thing from every, like, noir movie where there's just, like, we are both in uniform, we both kind of know how this goes. There is this, like, unspoken rule there. And, you know, as much as I think Garibaldi is a good guy... I feel like this extra special, like, moment of extra trust that they have there kind of bites them in the ass here because there is this unspoken moment of, yeah, we kind of, you know. Yes, but also Garbali is the boss. So on which level could he have made him believe that, yeah, okay, I get that. No, no, that's that's, that's not to say that would have been a viable way out. I think this is just, like, one of the reasons why does Garibaldi get into the situation in the first place, and I think that that might be part of it, where, um, you know, you get used to sometimes the truth being a little bit malleable when you're talking to other people in uniform, and that kind of goes goes into the situation. While I could totally see Garibaldi renting out someone of his security guys who did mm. something wrong. On the other hand, if, uh, well, let's say the bad apples stay together, it's, it's hard to, to get at them. I, I, I have to think of, of, uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how, how to call this the, the problematic police situation in, in Frankfurt. Um, for our for our listeners, there was a bit of a, yeah, case of a, 
um, chat group of police people um, talking about rather, yeah, racist, sexist, ableistic, and whatever you can imagine things. And as clever as they were, they did it on WhatsApp. Yeah, the, the the problem though is that um, yeah, I think the the, the investigation isn't really going clearly because oh, there there was 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 a report of because the the police of Frankfurt was doing the job of looking at this case, which is obviously stupid as hell. Um, um, I'm, I think up until now, the last report I saw is that it's still not solved, and the 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 officers are still not uh, thrown out of their job. Um, they they I don't think they are working, but they're still they still have their job, uh, and yeah, it's it's sh shit up. Oh yes, thing you can't you can't imagine, and and this feels a lot like this what's happening here in B5 for me at least. And as long as you have reached this status of a certain kind of authority or if you have put on a certain uniform and have the right to wear it, it's kind of difficult to prove you wrong or to, to take that away from you, even if real shit goes on. Yes. I mean that's that's the same with with um with doctors. If one messes up it will be hard to find another who says yes he mess messed up because, well, to a certain degree, I can I can understand it. On the other hand, of course, there are a lot of reasons for this to be wrong. Yeah, so. but it, I mean, it, it just goes to show like this is obviously something that we talk about with with uh, police in in general, and also a, a military structures in Germany sometimes have the same problem. You know, sometimes. Uh, large amounts of ammunition get smuggled out into like weird coup attempt groups that want to reestablish a kingdom yes. and stuff like that. Or just but... suddenly just read that ammunition uh, is missing and no one knows where it went. Yeah, but uh, of course, like you mentioned, this is not something that is like exclusive to these jobs. It's just as soon as you have like a group of any sort, they you know, they're humans, they tend to stick together. It's just if you give yeah. them guns, that might, sometimes is a bigger problem than in other jobs. But yeah, but doctors, you know, anything that deals with life and death, that's a problem. And all of this is just to say that um, as bad as a situation that is that Garibaldi is in, and as much as I would like to blame him for getting into that, I don't have a hard time seeing a situ situation like this coming about just because these bonds exist and they can make people blind for these internal structures to such a degree that, yeah, I like to mention, we've seen the security guard a few episodes before already. He was never very competent. He's always, he's always kind of, hmm, a questionable choice for his job. And so I, I think, yeah, for me, I, I really view it as Garibaldi, for all his good qualities, sometimes he's a terrible judge of character. And it's just very bad for somebody in his job. And I also I also think that that we have someone so far out in the security of a place like Babylon 5 who is involved into this plan to kill the president. Just shows 
are just gives you an idea of how deep into earth forest this uh group is involved so whenever you now talk to someone may it be the senator or anybody else um who brushes you off you never know is it really just to keep the situation down or is the person involved because or just an asshole or just asshole because this plan is huge you know which is also one of these things where once again this finale does give us some satisfaction after watching the entirety of season one because we keep hearing about We've got friends in high places, there's stuff going on, Psycho is controlling everything. We keep hearing about these things. Now we know that's real. This is something that actually happens and it can happen everywhere. It's not just the security force of the president in the, the episode with Garibaldi's uh, past ties because other people are incompetent. No, it can happen to our characters as well. They can fall victim to this just as easily. Which just adds once again to this little feeling of everything is on fire now, and I can't. I don't know who's going to be giving me water or kerosene to put it out. So, it's it's a massive problem. I think what does mm, give or or no? Let me let me rephrase this. What lets us miss this dramatic um, high point we usually have? in the last episode of a season is that there's that we don't see much of this. We just yeah. see more of the end results, like uh, the destruction of this, this airship of the president. You don't see these, this, this tension building up. Mm. It's just like, bam. And I think this is, we said, the show keeps zooming out, but at the same time, it is still very confined to the perspective of Babylon 5. Yes, and even there, I think we, we, um, not that we, although maybe, the, yeah, I think that also plays a part into this, not all of characters of our main cast are included into this feeling of everything burns. Mm. I mean, we see Veer for one moment at least, but mm. for example, where is Talia? Yeah. I mean, she is important and she's yeah. part of the main cast and we have this final and she's not even in the, in the picture somewhere. And I think that we have this, um, also that Catherine is just there. And from the last episode they had together, up to this getting married, there's no more interaction between them. I think that we miss all of these um, character moments and also make this ending maybe a bit unsatisfying. Yeah, and even though, I mean, we have Ivanova, but... She is a bit disconnected, so she's not playing a major role. We have like two or three instances where we see her with the, hey, you want to be my maid of honor? And I think one short moment on in the CNC and then when Garibaldi gets operated. Otherwise, we don't see her and she has nothing much to do. Like when when Garibaldi is, is missing... Uh, what would she do? So far, I would yeah. imagine that she um, gives hell to, to the rest of security, like, go search for your boss and don't come back until you find him. Yeah. And this is all the things that we are missing, of course. Yeah, we have limited time, um, but still, it's the emotional part is not that heavy in this episode, which, yeah, just, just makes this feel rather distance 
half distanced. I don't know if I would call it necessarily that the emotional part isn't as heavy, but it puts the emphasis on a very unsatisfying yeah. part. Like for Ivanova, for example, I feel like I don't disagree with this choice. What it does do is it relegates it to very much the perspective of an observer, which in other episodes I would completely agree is sad for her to see because she is a character who can do a lot of action. But with all of the events that happen here, even if we see her chew out the, the security team and stuff, it would still end at the sense of she is an extremely active person who wants to do something and there are just things happening outside of her control. Yeah. To That's such a degree good. that, you know, this is what shapes her emotional experience, I would imagine, in this the story. The problem I have is we realize this because we're talking a lot about this. That but is absolutely If you watch, just watch it, even though if you watch it the, the second or the, the third or whatever time, I can't really imagine that all of this is something that sticks with you as no. a viewer. No. And that's, again, I think is a problem of course it's 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 nice to that you there's so much to analyze to see to interpret to link to but if you just watch it i think it's yeah it's it's not not much that stays with you uh, and which makes it problematic for people to keep it watching because it's Absolutely. another episode that feels unsatisfying i mean if you if you think for example or a show that um the, that I like to compare in this regard, where you often have a show that I like to compare here because you often have funny and interesting interactions between the characters, and sometimes even maybe a bit too much is actually Stargate Atlantis, where I feel like if we had a showdown like this, we would have a lot more little character moments where you see how everyone is involved. Like I feel like Talia would have gotten at least her moment that kind of summarizes her on where she watched the news. Or we would have had these two minutes of Ivanova screaming at someone so that you have this little one Ivanova moment. Um, and I think losing the main cast out of focus here, yeah, is a problematic choice. And I definitely would there would have liked to see more of that dynamic. Yeah, because if, especially this this main cast, we, we know by now how they how they take what what's important to them what's what's their traits and missing them out feels like this is not that important yeah i think this this summarizes it quite well mm. yes um do you have any more on that I think the closest thing would be the Sinclair side of things for me. Yes. Maybe before we start with the plotline, I have to say I was laughing when I first, I think this is, no, no, that's it's not the first time we see him in this episode. Uh, but after the whole arguing between Lando and Jakar in the beginning. Mm. We have him and Catherine in his quarters, I think. Um, his dressing. Oh my gosh. Is I had a really, really hard flashback. Like what a certain kind of people in the 90s were running around in Germany with a special cut, haircut. 
you look like you're still missing. Yes, I still know. <laughs> uh, I, I think one of the most iconic people of this look was Rudi Völler. Yeah, no, I think I get the haircut, but where was it in that episode? Um, the clo clothing of, of Sinclair. This, yeah, first. this balloon like oh. um jogger outfit he had. Yeah, yeah. Oh gosh, I had I had to laugh so hard. Maybe we can uh, for for the for the uh, people looking the, at this on on YouTube make uh, a comparison between the these looks because oh okay, it it it's always a look, uh, especially the 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 combination with this haircut. I just want to run away because of this. Ah, oh, it feels wrong on, on, in so many ways. Um, and if the show like draws parallels to not 90s America but 90s Germany, that's <laughs> that's not a good thing. <laughs> a lot of, that means that even for 90s standards in the US, that would have been in a look uh, of 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 some description. Oh God! Because the 90s were not not a, a good fashion uh, <laughs> decade in Germany. Certainly no. not. No. But better than the 80s. No, that's a different podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but ah, uh, gee, no, yeah, but I, I had a moment <laughs> when I saw Sinclair in this clothing. Uh, luckily, it was uh, overshadowed by his words. Yeah, that he pulled that off despite his outfit is actually <laughs> quite impressive. Yeah, and um, I, I don't really uh, get it word by word, but. Uh, along the lines of, do you want to get married or not? I think that's what he said. Yeah. Well, was it, was it perfectly? The entire to... speech was like him trying to build himself up to it. And I feel like at the end, he got more annoyed with himself than anything else. So he just kind of blurted yeah. it out like that. Yeah. It's very... I, I don't know. Catherine reacted kind of emotionless, like the whole episode. Like in the, in the other episodes we saw her in, it was only one, wasn't it? No, I think two, Julia, at least. That was okay. But in this episode, in these two sequences about marriage, kind of talk about I don't know what that was. Okay, maybe maybe I have missed this because I was, uh, yeah, laughing about about this uh, proposal. Yeah, so, because I can totally see this happening. Um, and yeah, but on 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 the other hand, um, I I can't really imagine Sinclair going. In another way, like like I don't know with with uh, something cheesy with with rose petals and and stuff like that. It's certainly not his style. And I think in a in a weird way, at least for me, this is also the sort of shining reflection of what we see throughout all the other plots of this episode. All this episode is about these big turning points. Whether or not they feel as big as they should is is a different story, but it's certainly supposed to be these like big moments of transformation. I mean, the whole thing is called Chrysalis, for God's sake, um, where the future is now uncertain. And I feel like the proposal that Sinclair gives here is the exact opposite for it. It's a proposal between two people who have made this decision a very long time ago already. Like, he even forwards this thing with, like, we've basically done this entire relationship multiple times now. We've We've gone, like, if your marriage vows include, like, going through thick and sing in life and death and sickness and health, we've already done that. It's just a formality at this point. So it's not a big gesture. Exactly. It's not a big gesture. It's not a big turning point. It's not anything to do with a surprise at the end of it. And on the opposite, 
this is two people deciding what we have got works and we want to preserve this. We want to like somehow enshrine it, sure, ceremoniously, nice and all that. But we want to hold on to this sense of security, which in the general, everything is on fire and burning right now, is like the, the shining light of finding some level of stability. Well, it's just super naive because honestly, how can that end well? Like that's not I mean, if you want to be cynical about it, you can't. I'm but like we cl very clearly see that these two people aren't that at this moment. I know. I don't get it. Well, I would I would uh, go in this direction and be the practical uh, one saying, yeah, you managed so far without the marriage. So why waste money and marry? It worked so far. If it will go. You can say that. But honestly, the chance to see Garibaldi as a best man would be a good argument for my, for, for my end. And I think in that case, it would actually make sense because we know that they have this long story of getting together, having the same kind of fight, being apart for a year. Then if they're not dating someone else, getting back together, maybe getting married is an attempt to to leave the breaks out. Okay, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's that because <laughs> they, they make the marriage proposal on the premise that they finally managed to get the breaks out uh, already. Yes, but that would secure that, I guess. And under maybe. that backstory, maybe you need that to secure that. So that I guess. I, it, maybe that's that's my, my cynical part, but usually a marriage or, or the the other option is like getting a child. No, that would be a terrible you, this, this is why I have this on. Like, Sinclair clearly says, like, our relationship is functioning now, therefore let's have a marriage. Not, our relationship is not functioning, let's marry and see if that fixes it. Because that would be horrible. And yeah, no matter how he proposes to that. That's usually, yeah, the, the direction. Fortunately, this is how it happens, yeah. But so we're back to sitcom discussions, I guess. <laughs> sitcom discussion. I have to. I, I have to say, it's. Uh, I I find Garibaldi incredibly adorable at this scene. Like he he gets told, "Will you be my best man?" And it feels like his next dialogue line is him already like trying to practice for the toast of, "Ah, I met you so long ago. I'm so proud to be here." And I I don't know. I feel like he he's like yeah, immediately on, trying to get on. Into on the other hand, running across the room room several times. Okay, I have to get in there some some uh way to to diss him diss. to to uh tell the stories he doesn't want to be told mm. usually like it's 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 on a on a wedding uh, at some point i can totally see him this he will definitely do that and try to put in a daffy duck joke that nobody else <laughs> oh, gets yeah. because he's yeah. like 200 years old at this point maybe maybe dylan since she watched with him Maybe she not she now love her, but she was still not get it. I'm convinced she has this is nest yeah. on her, unfortunately. Talking about Dylan, this is the last big plot point that we have to talk about with this episode. Yeah. I'm afraid. That's why I asked if we if you have more on it because I would really like to talk about Dylan. Mm -hmm. Um. Um. What I found interesting is that. We see Kosh rather active. Yeah. Yes. Concerning her. And that's very, very weird for him, I guess. I and like she sees him naked. And. That's yeah. how I would have put that, but it is true. <laughs> yeah, well, he, she sees him without his suit. She's like, that's, oh my that's... god, the prophecies are about to be fulfilled. I gotta get some from him before <laughs> I actually go into the cocoon. But. Did you, in, in that scene. Did you get a hint of what she saw? 
Do you have any idea what could have been inside? <laughs> Not technically what in a in a material sense. Um just something, yeah, well that that's connected to, to this prophecy. Um that either something that should be a result or a part of this prophecy either happening or like like the end of the prophecy. I I thought something like that. Maybe it's the prophecy from Babylon Squared and she actually just saw old Sinclair with a scar and he was just glowing. <laughs> glowing. The only Sinclair. No, 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 no. This is going far too <laughs> too much into Twilight. Yeah. Or... Because actually, I don't know if we want to say that out loud yet. But no. in that scene, there was a hint that of what she saw. Oh no, not to say. It. Okay, we will get there. Um. Now I want to rewatch. <laughs> there was a hint. Excuse me, you have to do the rest of the podcast. Oh, <laughs> I have to rewatch. You watch scene. like slowly in the background. Um, yeah, I mean, what, 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 I mean, the, the future is insecure and she's in her chrysalis and she is working on this prophecy. And I think um, the, she's constantly talking about a prophecy and we are not aware of what is in the right, what, what it says. Um, and she finds the signs that um, it is coming true, it is happening now. And it's doing something super invasive and, and, and uh, extreme to her body. And while she's doing that, all of Earth, all of our world it kind of has this nervous fiery feeling so i kind of always felt like without knowing what comes next really her body like her physical being becomes like the symbol for the state the world is in and that is kind of poetic i think yeah it totally feels like this is why she gets to name the episodes right with her actions i feel a bit bad about saying this but uh before she got into this cocoon where she placed the the last part of this thing uh in in her quarters i, I was just like oh nice she finally finished her puzzle yeah that looked really yeah she's been working on this for a little bit um any idea what that thing is <laughs> beyond being like a very elaborate D map um well, it has some connection to Sinclair. Does it? Yeah. Well, she's like you have going with this this little thing at the at the tip. Uh, going to Sinclair and asking him, you know, you know what this is. You have seen this before. Okay. Um. And they s did something with this. I don't know. Maybe it's. It's like, uh, like Harry Potter, like, like the... This is Horcrux. Uh, no, not the Horcrux. It's <laughs> uncannable. <laughs> yeah, there's a really nice joke, by the way, about uh, what if, if um, uh, Voldemort would have put one of his Horcrux into Nokia. This, this special Nokia phone that you couldn't destroy. Or if you would have just taken one cent coins or whatever. Actually, you know what triggers my inner monk? That Voldemort, who is like such a drama bitch, makes six Horcruxes and the seventh one is an accident. Like, I can't take it. He should have made seven and Harry should have been the eighth. I just... I... Yeah, yeah. But... That's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, but like like some, some 
sort yeah like like the prophecy mm-hmm. like um like a birth no not a lot of conversation <laughs> conserving uh thing of this of this prophecy and that it somehow reacts with the people involved in this prophecy but why is she in a chrysalis what is happening to her Yeah, because her next evolution stage is important for the prophecy. I think we talked about prophecy a little bit, and I'm actually not quite sure how often this happens, but she keeps talking about the prophecy and what Valen said. I have no idea what the prophecy is. Like, I, Up to this point, I didn't know the prophecy included Minbari butterflies apparently <laughs> being a thing. And It's the 90s. I guess so. No, but it's it's just this thing where we have this character acting on a very important prophecy, and by all accounts, she seems to be the chosen one if she puts herself on the chrysalis of some sort. And the way Lanier talks about it, this doesn't seem like something that has been done before, at least often, because everybody's yeah. just like, we don't know what's happening here. So she built this machine, but clearly she really got this crystal puzzle thing, whatever it is. But but for all her knowledge, she doesn't seem to be entirely sure what happens. And when he asks her, like, what if it goes wrong, she's also completely uh, open to the fact that, yeah, maybe I am wrong and maybe I will just die doing this. So, uh, I yeah, I, th- this just feels to me kind of interesting, having this character for working on a prophecy, but we as the audience and this character doesn't 100% understand what that even is, what the implications are of that. Um. A spoiler question. Do we ever get to know what the prophecy explicitly yes. says? Okay. You will know by the end of this show precisely what the prophecy does. And you will also know in detail where exactly it comes from and why it is exactly the way it is. Why it isn't more clear in its instructions and that kind of stuff. And my personal opinion, it will not lose its magic through it. It will actually get even more magic. Yeah. Um, okay, because I think, yeah, the, the whole problematic of prophecies, we already uh, dived into this. Um, and I think withholding the information, what the prophecy is, is a rather smart um, choice. Because if you have like like um, the explicit words or, or rough ideas, you start like like matching things oh this would be this and that and this is fitting um which is a nice or can be a nice puzzle for 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 the audience or or reader or whatever um media you're you're talking about but overall it's at least in my opinion more problematic because you raise rather explicit um ideas of what will happen so if you keep it foggy um there's just a broader way of of interpreting this and therefore you're not like oh this is a stupid prophecy because there is nothing you can really uh build your your ideas on I think you talked before a little bit about uh, prophecy stories, especially in ancient mythology, right? Where as a storytelling device in in modern fiction, they can be kind of a problem because they either 
take all the tension out of it by telling you explicitly what's going to happen or more often they make your main characters look very stupid because it's yeah. like you went to the Oracle of Delphi which has never worked for anyone ever before without backfiring in some horrible way. Why would you do this again? And what this show does very well is the the prophecy, you will learn more about it but you will learn about it in a way that at every step of the way, you also know why the characters are interpreting it exactly the way that they are doing that. And if there is room for things to go differently or so, you will have a good understanding of why that is. And a little bit of this is happening here already where you see this process that Elen has. She clearly has an idea of where in the prophecy she is at and what her role is. But she's also entirely uncertain about that. She needs confirmation of some sort about that from Kosh. And then she's in kind of in this kind of blind trust in Kosh. Like she puts a lot of trust in him and he gives he apparently is able to give her proof that this risky thing is the only thing to do, the only right thing to do right now, which I find interesting. The amount of trust she can put into him. Maybe we can draw a parallel here even to this thing we talked about first about Londo and how um, um, Mr. Morden kind of interacts in his very own way with this part of Londo that keeps the fire going in that conflict. And Delens is par in parallel putting the blind trust and the integrity of, of her body in the hands of Kosh. I think there are interesting dynamics with these mysterious characters mm -hmm. going on here. Especially because the dynamic there was a little bit layers, right? Like, she goes to Kosh for confirmation, but not necessarily for confirmation that it's going to work. She, after that, still talks about this transformation very much as something that can go wrong. Speak well to me if it doesn't work out. So it's more like sh she goes to Kosh to, try to confirm it's worth trying it now. It's still risky, but it's... We are at a situation now in some capacity that it's worth me trying to do whatever it is I'm trying to do right now. Uh, I'm not sure, but maybe, maybe it's because I'm not that precisely remembering this scene, though um, now it, it feels more like uh, to me that it's more that you know, she's that she's going for a confirmation that to do this is the right thing, but like more like the confirmation of a sign. Mm. Like this is like, yeah, like, like there's like a sign in the prophecy. Like, yeah, if this happens, then go to the next step. Yeah. And um, it feels more like this to me. Like, okay, this, this sign, is this really the sign I, I interpret here or, or that that makes, I mean, we have this moment where, you know, she sends Lanier to Kosh to ask any kind of question and the answer she gets back is just yes. Mm -hmm. This is exactly that kind of question. Like, has sign X happened? Yeah. And the answer is yes. And this for her is, okay, then I can go ahead. Like, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, because, yeah, that would have been my next question. Like, what the hell did she have Lanier ask Kosh that a simple yes is enough to for her set everything into motion but yeah looking for a sign that she knows to be very important or believes to be very important uh definitely works there and yeah Kosh's um role later on to when he goes to Sinclair and of course drops the heavy line 
off and so it begins uh and then drops another line uh did you forget something <laughs> where i was like oh you, you know I knew it, I knew it once, all along. Once again, just like with Jakar, I believe we see two sides of Koshi, the professional and being a professional Kosh means be as obtuse and inconclusive <laughs> as possible. Just drop lines like now it begins because it's the final episode. Ha ha. Fuck you, audience. <laughs> and then when his official duty is done, he's just like, hey, Sinclair, I, I will remind you of that thing you really wanted to do right as it's too late for you to do it. There you go. Ha ha. And yeah, that's that's just he, he must be intentionally unhelpful here because there's no way he had not the option to be like five minutes quicker than this. Yeah. Just shambling through. And yeah, I feel like we are through the episode. Yes. Yeah, I feel so through. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the final thing that I would say to this is uh, we close this episode off with uh, and this season off with like one last very humanizing moment for Sinclair where this entire season he's been working up to this great revelation of what happened with my mind, what is going on. And now finally... He has learned enough that Delenn recognizes, okay, if I'm going to do whatever it is she's doing, I should finally tell him. I should, like, have a good talk with him. And then he misses it because he's human and he forgets. And he can't even be mad about this. He's sitting there with his, like, uh, uh, five, five in the morning beard and just so done with the day and the work and everything that happened. And yeah, at the end of the day, you know what? It's it's it was probably not that important. I just I just need to get some sleep, and I just feel like that is um, very unsatisfying as a conclusion to this plotline for the season. That is completely valid, but character wise, it's just it. I I don't um, I don't know how he could have dealt with that any other way. I am not sure if I had the energy left at this point to even go to Dylan. Yeah. And just like, just like, you know what, whatever. I will talk to the butterfly. It's fine. <laughs> so what do we do now? Is a tapestry time or do we? We don't really need a tapestry time because we will have the entire season's retrospective. That's true. Um, is the next episode. The next episode, which is also going to be a special gala. Yes. So get out your nice outfits. Nevertheless, instead of a tapestry time, I would like to ask one question of our new beam. Because we are going to look back at the entirety of season one, of course, and we are going to look at the entirety of season two in the next relatively near future. Given where you are at now emotionally with this season one finale, and it clearly didn't provide the big boom that Susan Ivanova promised, what would be your hope for season two? What should this series do? What should change for things to become more satisfying? And that can be anything from tell me finally what is happening with Sinclair's head to something more abstract like maybe more linear storytelling maybe you know uh, s something to that effect uh, well it's not, not a special um, information you know, 
story thing. It's more like the the how the story is is told. Like okay. we we more or less agreed in this episode. There's a bit of of drive missing. Mm -hmm. It's this this unsatisfying feeling that is with this episode with which we had uh, with um, several epi other episodes earlier. Um, that this this kind of storytelling is a bit more, let's say, refined. That mm -hmm. takes you more either emotionally or or anything, but that that gives you on on one hand this this feeling like oh my gosh, there's really big and and drastic things happening. Um, that gives you some answers. That of course gives you enough questions. Um, as well, but the the storytelling just a bit more, bit more substance to not feel, let let leave, leaves you off with this feeling of there's something missing. Would you say that more agency for our characters might be a good idea? Like especially somebody who uh, like Ivanova, who in this episode was very reactive, that maybe having people go more in pursuit of some of these things would help. Um, of, of course, there are a lot of, of ways doing this. This would be one thing. Mm. Um, well, I, I have to admit, I'm, I don't think I'm well versed enough with um, series and, and, and movies um, to get the exact idea of what you could do for them to make the narration uh, a bit differently. Um, but I, I think, yeah, there, there are a lot of options uh, certain to, to take there to change this. Okay. And of course, we, as you already confirmed, we are leaving this, this prologue like first season. Therefore, I think we, we know roughly how the world, how the universe, how the people work. Therefore, you can focus on on other things, uh, and I think this this also changes quite quite a lot about how you tell the story. Absolutely, I mean this is from a storytelling perspective, obviously what's going to happen, and you know we know it's a TV show, so you also know that now the studio is going to look at season one and is going to give notes. The audiences are going to react to the, the episodes of season one, and you know people back then had much the same opinions that, that you have in some respects. So the, the writer is also now going to get these. Circumstances are going to change. So it is no secret to say that uh, the story will be told in different ways from here on out. And with every season, that is also going to continuously change and evolve. So this is, this is just why I'm asking, because things are going to be different. And it's going to be interesting to see if they are different in ways that you approve or not. And if maybe the big pivotal moment to you loving the show will come or maybe not, who knows? We will force you through it anyway. <laughs> I think that uh, is a good replacement for our tapestry. So this does our replaced tapestry segment then. And of course, we always have our community question, which this time around is going to be once again directed at uh, first time fans of the show. Uh, who caught it back in the 90s. How did it feel to uh, have to sit through like six months, 12 months of waiting for the next season? And uh, what's what got you to it? I know that a fair amount of people also didn't catch Babylon 5 in the first run. 
so they they didn't have to wait just like we did and uh, maybe that is due to this first season finale not being the most gripping perhaps to to get people to tune in next time but i hope or we hope you do this with our podcast that uh, our next episode is going to uh, be interesting to you because it's going to be a very special gala episode where we do a retrospective of the entire season one and also uh, hand out prizes to favorite scenes, favorite characters, least favorite characters and that sort of thing. And we are still preparing a lot of very fun and interesting rewards for that. Um, until then, you can find us as usual on all the social media platforms at Third Age Podcast. And of course, uh, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music and the likes. But of course, here on YouTube, we're the cutest because here you can see us. So we hope you liked our last episode of the first season. Hope you tune in for the next episode. Have a very, very happy new year. And please come back next year. Until then. Thank you.